Um, not all churches have that. Lots of young people, lots of uh, kids uh, running around, lots of old people together. Uh, as a matter of fact, people are very concerned about the state of the church. There is an Anglican bishop, um, Lord Carey, Bishop Lord Carey. And he introduced this phrase, the church is always just one generation away from extinction. You look at all these beautiful buildings and they can be empty. And you see all these people and they can go away. And Carrie was very worried about the faith of the British Empire in the year 1147. So it's not new. The church has always been just one generation away from extinction. And especially now when we have a, a rapidly changing society and culture, uh, we're so worried about the millennials, you know, are they going to come back to the faith? And so some churches decide they are going to do whatever they can to get these people back. It's a wonderful desire to have reaching out to the next generation. And so they fill the stage with smoke machines and they have it be a, this is a hot spot for a Pokemon thing. And they, uh, they, they make it so, oh, come on, come on Sunday. You won't even know you're in church. We'll make it intelligent and uh, it'll, be, it'll be good. Trust me, it won't be anything like church. And, um, and some of those are working and a lot of them are not. Uh, I had... Uh, one of my intellectual mentors was the, the chaplain of Duke University. His name was Willimon, William Willimon. And Bishop Willimon said, as people leave the modern American church, the temptation is to blend in, to make talking about God as natural as ordering a pizza. Well, we shouldn't try to make Christianity so accessible that people do not have to learn the language of a new kingdom the language of faith. It's not a secret handshake, he says. It's not a secret handshake. It's not, we're good, you're bad. It's a new way to live and to talk. So when uh, this old Bible, 2,000 years old, is translated recently by Eugene Peterson in the message, he takes the same old story and he doesn't get rid of all the faith things. He just scrapes the barnacles of religion off so that people can learn. Listen to what he does for people who are just coming to know about Jesus in Romans chapter six. It says, if we've left the country where sin is king, in other words, if we've become a Christian, what an interesting notion. If we've left the country where sin is king, how can we still live in our old house there? Our old way of life was nailed to the cross, a decisive end to that sin-miserable life. Something new has happened. We are no longer at sin's every beck and call. I love that phrase. We don't have to live the way we used to. And never again will death have the last word. That 99-year-old lady I talked about, she's alive. Never again will death have the last word. And then Paul says this, he says, when Jesus died, he took sin down with him, but alive, Jesus brings God down to us. And then this is the part that I wanted you to get, this, this phrase here. From now on, think of it this way. Sin speaks a dead language that means nothing to you. 
God speaks your mother tongue, the tongue that you were born to learn, the language you were born to speak. God speaks your mother tongue, and you hang on every word. That's the language we need to learn. Part of being the kind of church that we just talked about with those values is that we are a language school here. We're a language school for new life. The temptation, frankly, for all churches is to turn the language school inward and make it an immersion classroom. Some of our kids do immersion learning all day, every day. That's all they talk about. That's fine. Good way to learn the language. But some churches take that to the next level. The only people they ever meet are people from their church. They're learning the language. I believe that God wants to teach you a new language for life and send you out there into that place that desperately needs to hear this language. This is the 60th autumn that people have met at 70th Street. And we are going to spend the time exploring our foundations, the pile of rocks. We want to know where we've come from so that we know what our future is. Our foundation leads to our future. And I believe it happens as a community, but I also believe that it's true about you. Each week, we want to talk about your past, and we want to challenge you about your future. We're calling the series Faithful, and and we're saying it's about our past, so you have to start somewhere, right? Maybe they would have started when they dug the foundation here, but in the Bible story, there was a time where the people of God didn't have a place to call their own. It's right after the time where Moses frees all the Israelite slaves out of Egypt. Remember that? Charlton Heston, the Red Sea, all that kind of stuff. He comes to the Red Sea and the sea splits and they walk across. Pharaoh's army is killed. They're going to the promised land. The problem is they mess up like we all mess up. And they spend 40 years out in the wilderness. God keeps them alive, but they spend 40 years wondering about this promised land and then Moses dies. The new leader is Joshua. And God says, just the same way I was with Moses, I'll be with you, Joshua. Watch. The same way that I had Moses split the Red Sea, you're going to walk to the edge of the Jordan River and put the Ark of the Covenant in, and the Jordan River is going to burst in two, and you're going to be able to walk into the promised land. Watch. Let the people see. That leads to Joshua the book of Joshua, chapter 4. It says, after the whole nation had gone across the Jordan River, the, the river splits, they walk across on dry land, the Lord spoke to Joshua, choose 12 men from among the people, one from each tribe. Tell them to get 12 stones out of the middle of the river, right where the priest stood with the Ark of the Covenant and where the water should have been. They should carry the stones with all of you and put them down at the place where you'll sleep tonight. There will be as many stones, 12, as there are tribes of Israel. The stones will serve as a reminder to you. In the days to come, your children will ask you, what's these pile of stones all about? Tell them that that's where the Lord cut off the Jordan River when the ark of the Lord went across. The stones will always remind the Israelites of what happened there. 
So the Israelites did as Joshua commanded. And Joshua also piled up 12 stones right there in the middle of the river. He piled them right up where the priest who carried the Ark of the Covenant had stood. And they're still there to this very day. So it wasn't just one pile of rocks. It was at least two. This becomes a pattern for the people of God. Later on, the prophet Samuel is going to be in Israel where the Philistines are just about to crush him like a grape. And in their despair, the people call out to God and God saves them from the Philistines who all run away and they're saved. So Samuel the prophet takes out a huge stone and sets it on the road between Mizpah and Shen, two little villages. Huge stone. And he said, this stone is called Ebenezer. This stone is called Ebenezer because the Lord has helped us every step of the way. So, language school for new life, class 101. First word, Ebenezer. Ebenezer. Say the word Ebenezer. Ebenezer. Great. Now you speak not one word of Hebrew, you speak two words of Hebrew. You speak the word eben. Eben means stone. And ezar, ezar means help. And Ebenezer is a stone of help. It is a stone that reminds us where God helps. What's a stone of help called? It's a... You already speak God's mother tongue. There's two words that will help. The old hymn says, Here I raise my Ebenezer. Hither, right here, by thy help I am found. And I hope, by thy good promise, safely to arrive at home. I believe that we need Ebenezer's. We need to be reminded of the power when only God could change the course of the river. Only God could help my life. Only God could pull us together. Only God. I also believe that you don't need another long sermon to tell you that. As a matter of fact, I've been struck this summer by the power of pith. When we say something is pithy, it's brief and to the point and powerful. The, uh, probably the most popular newspaper in the last century, at the beginning of the century, was the London Times. It was the paper of the British Empire. And to show that they were the smartest, periodically on the front page of the Times, uh, the uh, editors would have a contest and say, if you can answer in this column this question, you get 100 pounds, a lot of money back then. The problem was every time they ran it, the same guy won. And so after a while, people said, well, I want to see what Chesterton says first. His name was G.K. Chesterton. And they would ask, for instance, uh, they would say, look around you at all the troubles in the world. What is the major problem in the world today? And people wrote all these scholarly pieces about politics and race and economics. And in one sentence, G.K. Chesterton said, the major problem in the world is me. Out of my broken heart flow all the troubles of my life. Out of our broken hearts flow all the troubles of this world. 
The problem in the world is me. Okay, I'll give you that one. Then they come up with another one and they say, if you are stranded in the South Pacific on a desert island and you're all alone and you could bring just one book with you, what book would you bring? And everybody says their own thing. You know, the scholars say, well, I'd bring Plato's Republic. Right, so I could burn it. You know, I, 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 but the, then, the, you know, the literati would say, no, we are the people of Shakespeare. Bring Shakespeare's collected plays and understand love and terror and triumph. And of course, all the Bible people, all the religious people said, oh, are you kidding? You bring the Bible. You'd bring the Bible because God would speak to you. And Chesterton said, well, I think I would bring Morrison's book on how to build a ship. <laughs> so sometimes it's not the spiritual answer that wins. It's the short, correct answer. I, I want to give you one of those. We've learned what an Ebenezer is. I want to connect it to the gospel. Second word of God's mother tongue, the gospel. Uh, newspaper, uh, I'm sorry, a magazine I recently read, it's for pastors. Uh, they did a survey of seminary presidents, uh, big-time pastors, and they said, how would you describe the gospel in seven words? If you only had seven words, how could you put the gospel in seven words? And they got hundreds of responses. I don't know if it was the, the best, but the one I liked to most was one of my friends is the president of Princeton, Craig Barnes. And uh, Craig says, I don't need seven words to describe the gospel. I can do it in four. What's the gospel in seven words or less? It's this. We live by grace. We live by grace. Somebody wants to ask you, what is the center of the gospel? It's to live by grace. Craig goes on and, and says, uh, by grace, we are created in the image of God because God loves us. When we corrupt our lives and break them apart, God's grace in Jesus forgives us and doesn't give us a second chance. It makes us whole again. By the grace of God, the Spirit binds us to our Savior so that no matter how far away we run, He's still with us. By grace, you're given the church. By grace, God moves the chaos of my life over and creates beauty. And by grace, God interrupts my plans with God's dream that I will receive grace and become gracious. You get that idea? If I receive grace, can I become gracious? What's the gospel in seven words? We live by grace. So that's key number one. My Ebenezer is that we are a people who are called together to live by grace. When people drive by CPC, I don't want them to see a big building. I don't want to see a little pile of rocks of people who live by grace, the gracious love of God, not the people who have the best parking lot in the Twin Cities, not the people who have the biggest budget in the Twin Cities, not the people who do the most things all around the world. Not the people who look the best, sound the best, try the hardest. The pile of rocks that God wants to put down here is about amazing grace. 
what God has done for us, the stones of help. And instead of talking to you, I'd like to show you in three minutes what that looks like at 70th and 100. Last year, when I was in one of the darkest times of my life, uh, I was having struggles in my business, struggles with some members of my family, and some other things as well. My small group really came beside me. The, the men in my small group prayed for me, prayed with me. They encouraged me. They, they really pulled me up, and they were really God's active presence in my life. The lay care pastors and CPC families saw us through a difficult pregnancy with nine weeks of bed rest. They celebrated with us this summer at God's faithfulness when James was born. After learning at chapel time that God is real and I should follow him, Pastor Rich baptized me in the lake at my cabin this past summer. that God walks beside me all the time. Last year, when I lost Wendy, my fabulous partner of 46 years, my family, fellow believers at CPC and in Florida, helped me work through the grief process and keeping my eyes on Jesus and his word as I seek to run the race that is set before me. families. For my family, it is sacred and welcoming. It feels real and it feels so authentic. This spring Sankofa trip changed me spiritually and relationally in ways that I couldn't have imagined. And it continues to challenge me to look for ways that I can more fully live out God's vision of bringing the kingdom here on earth. My eyes have been opened that the gospel isn't just something to take in, it's something that we give out. I've been inspired to meet so many other Christians who take that great love of the gospel and put it into action. had to pick from hundreds that we could have used, hundreds of your stories that are still taking little rocks of grace and putting them down. That just, just so we understand, when, when she talked uh, about Mosaic, that's a special needs service we do in here where kids with special needs actually lead the worship. It's a holy time. 
The, the other one uh, talked about Sankofa. That's a trip that we take, matching up an African-American person and a white person, sending them off on a trip where they both learn together. And the last guy who uh, talked about extending the grace uh, has been in charge this last weekend of a very special time. This is a holy place. This is a holy place. And you know why it's holy? Because this last week, God allowed us the privilege of bringing in the homeless here and giving them shelter and meals and love. We got to do that. I, I wanted to ask you, what, what's your Ebenezer? What would you, when you slow down, point to and say, God was here. Thank God. Or maybe some of you feel like, I want that, but I, I don't have that. Would somebody show me how I could get that grace? I'm just trying harder and I'm not getting better. If that's the case for you, as, as we go out into the great room after worship, why don't you just stop over here in, in the prayer room? We'd love to just pray with you and talk to you about the difference that grace can make for all of us. But for now, I'd like to close by talking about what makes us one church. It's not new. It's from a 500-year-old confession that the church made back then, and it could be written yesterday. So I'd like you to stand and join with me in saying, is this the kind of church that you want to be part of? Tell me if you want to be the kind of church that describes itself this way. Let's say together, I believe that the Son of God, through His Spirit and Word, out of the entire human race, from the beginning of the world to its end, gathers, protects, and preserves for Himself a community chosen for eternal life and united in true faith. And of this community, I am and always will be a living member. Grace to God.